0: Alright, so tonight is a little bit different, Uh, and here's the reason why. Uh, We are about to, in the next couple of weeks, spend some time at the end of the book of Ezekiel. We're going to spend some time throughout the book of Ezekiel, but really we're going to hone in a lot on the end, which is going to be a little bit difficult, and so I thought I would just take one week to explain why it might be a little bit difficult to wrestle with. Um, because, in what we often don't realize, or what we often fail to realize, I think all of us would like to think that when we open the Bible, we have all, uh, you know, pre uh, whatever judgments, uh, prejudices, and things like that out of our minds, and we're kind of a clean slate. And we're opening the Bible, and we're just gonna we're just gonna let God's Word teach us. And in reality, uh, we come with a lot of baggage already to the table. There are things that we want the Bible to say. There are things we want it to affirm for us. There are things that we definitely don't want it to say or mean. Um, and we might not even know what those things are. And so. I think in my experience coming up, I was born and raised in the Baptist church, in Southern Baptist church. Um, From the time I was in the nursery, uh, you know, on up, uh, I was in a Southern Baptist church. And I I think there, there's some commonality that I think we, uh, that, that is part of that baggage for all of us that we were, we were brought up in. And I'm not using baggage necessarily in a negative context. I just mean that it's, it's, you know, it's like the clothes you wear. You know, we've got these clothes on, and we don't even really give thought to who made them or, or what, where they came from. But it leads to our interpretation of the Scriptures the way we, we read them. And, and what I hope to show you tonight is that in some cases, um, there are particular systems of thought that are part of us. The theology that we, we hold on to very dearly And that goes unquestioned for us. And we might not even be, or you might not even consider yourself a theological person. You might say, I don't know anything about that theology stuff, right? And I don't really, and you may even say, well, I don't even really care too much about it. As long as you, you know, believe the Bible and, you know, there's a couple things that I think are really important. And as long as that's the case, you know, then then I'm good, you know, and you may think that. But then, when things run into those, that, that baggage, you go, Now, wait a minute. Now, I don't think he's teaching the Bible anymore. You know, like it, it be, but because, it's because it's interfered with uh, theology that you may not know you actually do hold dearly. Um, so, this is going to be a little odd for me, uh, because I haven't really done it this way before. But I, I, I couldn't get around it. I thought, well we're going to go into Ezekiel, and we've at least got to talk about the reason why we interpret things sometimes the way we do. All right? And then uh, and, and and this is sort of preempting that I'm not going to interpret it that way. <laughs> so so uh, this will hopefully also explain why I don't see it that way, and I don't see that that's what is happening in Ezekiel. But I, I want to say all that to say also that if there are things that I say tonight that I might personally disagree with what I'm what I'm what I'm telling you, it doesn't mean that I, I don't think you're a Christian. It doesn't mean that that I I hate you or it doesn't mean any of those things. You, this is an inside the family conversation, right? This is a, a conversation around the dinner table where there's different points of view. Okay, is it, we we clear on that? Is that we're good with that? Okay, um, all right. So uh, I want to we're going to talk about dispensationalism, and I've used that term a lot of late, and it's just cycling through, isn't it? It just, I touched it and put it down, and it just kept on going. All right. Um, I've used that term a lot over the last couple of weeks, and I know that people in here, when I use that term, they go, I don't even know what that means. And some have asked me, well, about it and uh, and yeah, and and I've had conversations sidebar conversations And if you've had a sidebar conversation with me, you're not the only one. Okay, just know that um, But but I've used that term and I, and and at the beginning of all of this I thought I probably need to just unpack that, you know and just explain it and then I thought no nah, That's too hard. I'll just keep going and and so now here. We are um but it's it's really difficult to oversell just how impactful dispensationalism has been on American evangelicalism. Um, it is by far the predominant view in the church today. Um, with I would just going kind to of venture to guess that the vast majority of you in here. Would hold tightly, tightly to dispensationalism, and you don't even know it. <laughs> and if I teach something different than dispensationalism, you would go, I never heard that before. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Right? And if I taught what the which we're going to talk about tonight, the the tenets, the beliefs of dispensationalism, you might go. Well, yeah, what else is there besides that? Because it is something we hold tightly to. Uh, But dispensationalism, on the whole, at least to the finer points of dispensationalism, uh, came about in the early, uh, well, really became popular in the early 19th century England um, and were were voiced uh, in early 19th century England uh, by uh, John Nelson Darby. And it became really popular as part of the Plymouth Brethren movement. Um, and their denomination. And so uh, it started, most of the the central tenets of dispensationalism started there in about 1832 and on. And and it started to really gain traction, uh, not just in England, but then eventually crossed the Atlantic and into America and became really popular here. Um, There were two sources that have, first started the kind of the movement here in america and then led to the continued success of dispensationalism and they are these first is the schofield reference bible how many of you in here I'm, you're not outing yourself how many of you had a schofield reference bible yeah um so the Sco- yeah 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 <laughs> R- richard sold a bunch of them the schofield reference bible and, and the Schofield Reference Bible, the, the, it wasn't the translation, it was the notes at the bottom. There was the Reference Bible and then there were the, the Schofield Notes at the bottom. That if you, if you have a study Bible of any kind, you know, you've got the, the little division there at the bottom of the text and it kind of explains the verse above it or the, the passage above it or whatever. And that Schofield Reference Bible, um, for many early on in the 1900s in America became the the it was almost the line between the text of Scripture and the notes at the bottom were sort of blurred, right? Where it was if Schofield says it, that's the way it, that's the way it is. Well, Schofield uh, had a dispensationalist understanding of Scripture, and so those notes were dispensational in their understanding. I know I haven't said any I haven't taught what dispensationalism is yet, so I, I get it if you're going. What is it? Um, but then second, that led to the prolonged success of dispensationalism, especially the view of the end times, or a particular view of the end times, was the Left Behind series. How many of you read the Left Behind series? You're not outing yourself. I'm not criticizing you or anything like that. I read... uh, Bought the books, bought the movies. Bought the books, bought the movies. Yeah. Um, And and so when I say that that led to its popularity, I'm I'm not... nothing that I say tonight is dogging. uh, I have many friends who are dispensationalists. 90% probably, I'm guessing, of this room is dispensationalists. I'm not dogging any of you, okay? So just understand that. I'm not criticizing anybody. But when we talk about success or dominance of a viewpoint, what is it that promotes dominance of that viewpoint? Well, you know, study Bibles are helpful and cultural media is very helpful as well. So, uh, th- those two things coming together lead to a, a really a, a prolonged dominance of people's way of thinking about how the end times are going to fold out unfold what, what is the when I open this book Revelation and I can't make heads or tails of the things that are being said in it how do I understand this and then you turn to the left behind series and it's like well it plays out like this and instead of going verse by verse through the scripture we just sit around the campfire and I just tell you a story I mean that's that is, that's gripping, and that's convincing, and, and everyone will tell you that. Even, even uh, politicians will tell you what, what's better when you go out on the, on the, in the field. you want to sit there and talk about the finer points of foreign policy with a bunch of people in Iowa, or do you want to tell them a story about how their lives could be better? Well, everybody's going to be gripped by a story, and so part of the prolonged success of dispensationalism has been not only the reference Bibles and things like that, but then also this uh, series. It's, it's, I know it's a work of fiction, but it's, it's still uh, very led to its success. Now, as a result, a lot of the notable evangelists over the 20th century, um, uh, which would be the 1900s, held to this view, as well as the vast majority of charismatic preachers, okay? So I want you to think about that for a second, that you start getting a group of people that are raised on Schofield Reference Bible with with you know Thompson chain numbers and things like this, and, and then the notes at the bottom are largely dispensationalist, and they're, that's how they cut their teeth in Christianity. Well, when they grow up and they go to seminaries and then they begin preaching, a lot of that begins to then dominate their worldview and their way of thinking. And a lot of, you'll notice, probably in the coming generations, a lot of People in my group cut their teeth on other preachers, right? And kind of heard it differently growing up. And so, anyway, uh, so put that together, though, with the charismatic preachers, all right? Now, I want you to think about this. When you go to sit down in front of the TV and you turn on a TV preacher, the vast majority of them are charismatic of some kind. Now, you would probably call them prosperity gospel preachers, right? But they're part of a charismatic movement. And so, when the vast majority of teaching that you get, whether it's from the pulpit or whether it's from the TV, is all going to be of a particular stripe. So, what then happens is the, the dominance of that viewpoint becomes almost unquestioned because everywhere i turn i hear the same story does that make sense yeah we, you track it with me so far okay yeah. yeah um whoa gosh i wasn't necessarily prepared to have to do that uh a, a charismatic denomination would be like a denomination so like assembly of god who uh, believe in the, um, the dynamic and ongoing works of the Holy Spirit um, that are manifested in our worship services through the speaking of tongues, uh, through signs, sign gifts, uh, healing, uh, prophecy, um, a number of these kind of what we would typically refer to as sign gifts, um, that that's coupled really closely with the prosperity gospel movement not that all assembly of God people are prosperity gospel preachers that's not what I'm saying but the I would say that's not true but all prosperity go- most all prosperity gospel preachers are are part of that denomination it doesn't necessarily work the other way but it but it is right um, and, the, and they're the ones on TV uh, the Kenneth Hagans and the uh, help me out uh, Benny Hinn's and the what is it and the, Co- and the Copelands, that's the one I was thinking of, and, then, and the uh, Joel Osteens and, the B- and Benny Hans, they're, they're all attached in that Assembly of God s- swing, Creflo Dollar, yeah, uh, all, all in that uh, Pentecostal, uh, that, that whole swing. And so when you've got pretty much everywhere you're turning, you click on the TV, you hear the same story about Revelation as you hear from the person who cut their teeth on this on Schofield and and DTS and, and a lot of those other things then you kind of start to get the same uh, story uh, carrying the day. So, that being said, what is it? What is typical of dispensationalism of dispensational thought? So, how do I know when I hear it? All right? Um, again, dispensation I went to a seminary that is dispensational, all right? So, that so I have many friends who are dispensational uh, uh, and professors who could s- stand up here and, boy, it would be a one kind of night, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, that, that might disagree with me on a number of, of different things, but they're in heaven. They're going to be in heaven. I, I know some of them already are, and I know they will be. Um, so th- uh, there's nothing, um, um, what, what, is, what is the word, heretical, about dispensationalism. It's just we need to understand what it is. Um, Dispensationalism, the first, first big point of its central beliefs, it insists upon a strictly literal interpretation of biblical texts, unless explicitly told not to interpret it that way. But otherwise, it insists on a strictly literal interpretation of biblical texts, okay? Now, um, I want you to think about how that sounds, first of all, because I think most of you would go, how else would you interpret the Bible? Wouldn't that be the question? Imagine a, 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 a world, early 1900s, where, you, you know, academia, uh, a, a lot of people are trying to be kind of fuzzy, with the Bible, you know, the you can sense fuzziness, can't you, with Bible teaching, where you're, like, he's kind of trying to skirt around the virgin birth, you know, and like, I, he's not saying it, you know, or inerrancy of scripture, you know, you, you say, in you're not saying inerrancy, I really just want you to say inerrancy, you know, and you're saying, it's great, you know, and you're like, but well, that's not a really descriptive word, you know, they use kind of fuzzy terms, so imagine early 1900s, uh, academia is tar- starting to pick up movement in pulpits uh, in America, and the preachers are kind of beginning to be a little bit fuzzy. And you have, at the same time, a dispensational movement that says literal interpretation of the Bible is the only way to go. Um, when you have somebody then up at the pulpit, the litmus test for whether they are conservative, meaning they are part of the Christian faith, or liberal, meaning they are getting fuzzy with theology, is do you hold to a literal understanding of the Bible? Right? Yes? Uh, so, So it becomes a litmus test. You either believe it literally, or you don't. And dispensationalism... Core belief is that it's a strictly literal interpretation, and we should understand it as strictly literal. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think we should hold it that way. I think instead we should interpret the text exactly the way the author intended you to take it. That takes investigation, that takes study, that takes hard work, but sometimes the biblical author doesn't intend for you to take them literally. They intend for you to take them poetically, They intend for you to take them symbolically. They intend for you to take them, uh, interpret their allegories, their similes, their metaphors, and understand what it is they're saying. Right? And it's hard, but but think about John the Baptist. I use this example quite often. Think about John the Baptist standing in the river. And this is an easy one, but he's standing in the river, and Jesus walks up. And he says to the crowd, Behold, the Lamb of God is who takes away the sins of the world. How many people that are standing on the banks are taking him literally at that point? Everybody understands intuitively that what he's saying is not literal. He's using a figure to represent the person who is literally there. And what he's doing is saying something about that person who's standing on the shore. He's saying that that person, Jesus, when you look over to your left, you're not going to see a lamb. You're going to see a man standing there on the bank. But what I want you to see is not just a man standing there on the bank. I want you to understand him as the sacrifice that God is giving on your behalf to take away your sin. Yeah? So our job is to understand, when, because that's an easy one. I think everybody is like, I intuitive, I understood that one, right? But I'm saying there are things like that sprinkled throughout the Bible that we have to be very diligent to study, to understand that that's what they're doing. That's what they're saying. And that's easier said than done. <laughs> and it takes a lot of. It does take a lot of work. It takes a lot of study. It takes a lot of reading. It takes a lot of reading across the pages of Scripture to understand that. I get that, but um, dispensationalism, a core tenet of it, is strictly literal interpretation. Here's what that's going to lead to. Okay, so I want to kind of go through this. Um, all right. So as a result, dispensationalism for the the, the public tends to provide. Uh, understandable answers to those gnawing questions about difficult biblical texts. Right? So in Revelation you get uh, what can only be described as demon locusts popping up from the abyss um, and you are left reading Revelation chapter 9 going what on earth is that? Right? And John just, he just says it like it's nothing. And you're left going, time, time out. You know, can I just get somebody to explain the demon locusts coming up that have uh, serpents for tails and that have lion mouths and that spew venomous gas? What? I mean, what, what is this? Well, um, you'll see the strictly literal interpretation of dispensationalism taking effect on passages like these. You come to it and you go, I have no idea what's going on here. And somebody said, now there's a, there's a, a wide array of interpretations of that, okay? Even in the dispensational group. But one such interpretation would be, and you've probably heard this before. Well, he's describing what... A, First century understanding of a helicopter would be right you got the tail that's got the rotor on it and then you got you know the the i don't know the front and you got the missiles and things like this and and so John's describing that in some sort of first century kind of way of understanding that is not the only interpretation of that from even a dispensational perspective, but the point is when you are in that kind of literal interpretation, that's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do. And so, when you provide answers like that, people walk away and go, okay, I can see it. Right? Like, all right. Now, I mean, there's at least some answers there being provided for this text here in Revelation. Yeah? Have, have any of you ever heard that interpretation? Or was that, like, completely new? You, Some of you have? Okay, about half and half. Okay. Well, so... Um, So what that then will also lead to sometimes is that you kind of look at some of the events that are unfolding in either Revelation, uh, clouds rolling back like a scroll, things like that, and and they go, well, those things have never happened before in history, and so everything becomes a future uh, event. And so as we look at the world around us, as we read our newspaper, we're seeing, you know, Russia move to Ukraine, or wars breaking out in various places, and some in that kind of, we're bent on trying to interpret literally, I see this in Revelation 19, verse whatever, and, and here it is, right? You're seeing it. And so you, as a, as a Christian, who are listening to a, a, maybe a preacher you trust, and maybe somebody who's really good, and, and you're saying, I saw that in my newspaper and I'm reading this in Revelation and you're drawing the connection between the two. I mean, that's a really, um, that's comforting, isn't it? I mean, strangely comforting. It, it, because you're like I, like, I feel like my Bible is giving interpretation to my newspaper, right? And, and vice versa, that, that, that what God said is, is coming to fruition. And I'm seeing it right here play out in front of me. And so there's understandable answers, there's real-world events, and, and all of those things begin to connect when we take those interpretations, and it, and it, it actually helps us understand the Bible, or we feel like it does. Um, so the, it also would say, uh, next big tenet, so literal interpretation. Um, next thing is that the Bible should be understood as distinct periods, eras, Or, this is where the word comes from dispensations. So, dispensations are periods or eras throughout the history of mankind where God has operated with his people by a different set of rules, all right? Essentially. That he has operated with some people differently than he has operated, than he does now with with the church, okay? And. that their relationship with him was different versus the way that it is now. Um, And so, um, they would all recognize, now it's going to be a little bit different depending on the dispensationalists, but they're all going to recognize at least three dispensations. At most seven, but at least three. And that is the period before Pentecost, which they would call uh, the age of like the Mosaic Covenant, that, you know, the Old Testament, as it were. Um, the period between Pentecost and the return of Christ, which they would refer to as something like the Church Age, that, that time period. And then the third period being between the return of Christ and the eternal state. So the eternal state being new heavens and new earth. So that period between when Christ returns... And when we have a new heavens and new earth, and, it's, and it's, it's all glory from here, right? Like, at that point, whatever you want to call that, okay? So that period, they typically refer to as the millennium or that thousand-year reign of, of Christ, okay? So uh, it's at least those three, and we're going to see more in just a minute, but, but it's at least those three distinct areas. And... Between, in in each of those periods, God dealt differently with mankind um, and will deal differently with mankind in those areas. It's it's just a different set of rules, okay, that that he's governing by. Um, And so that means then that God has, and this is a huge marker of dispensationalism, is that God has two peoples. Two distinct peoples he has Israel, which you see that in the Old Testament or you might say in that dispensation that happened before Pentecost that was they were God's people right and and then we've got a different set of people now in the New Testament era which is referred to as the church and so Israel has a distinct promise given to her as the people of God for a land and a dwelling and all of those things, and then the church has the promise of heaven, and so there's even, if you go back far enough in dispensationalism, especially in the classic dispensationalism, those two distinct peoples even have two completely different destinations. That, that one group is destined for the promised land, and another group is destined for heavenly dwelling. And then when it's new heavens and new earth, one has the destination of the new heavens, and the other has the, new desti- has the destination of the new earth. Now, that's waned a lot. Now, that's not what you'll find in most dispensational circles now, but that, that was originally the way it was kind of thought of. And so there, there's two uh, groups, essentially, Israel and the church. Now, are, are, I'm, I'm just curious, I just want to know, is is some of this getting into some familiar territory, things that you've heard before? Some of you are saying yes? Some of you are saying no. Yes? Okay. All right. Okay. All right. I'm just... Just doing a temperature check and making sure. I've removed all the rocks from the room, so. <laughs> um, so, because... Now, I want you to couple a couple things together. Literal interpretation of Scripture. Go back into um, the Old Testament, and you're going to find promises made to Abraham. And, um, and the, it's some of those promises we would expect would come to fruition, um, right? They were promises of God and they should come to fruition. Um, have they come to fruition yet? No, we would say, most of us would say, no, they have not, yeah? So, when you think about, okay, this but this must be literally fulfilled. There has not yet been a fulfillment of those things. God has a people in Israel and has started a new people in the church. So that means that things like, the promises like the land that was promised first to Abraham and then on have to be coming to fruition. That has to, at some point, because that has not been fulfilled yet, at some point, that's got to come about, doesn't it? What you'll see in this, maybe, if you just pause and think for just a second, is that actually a lot of our thoughts on American foreign policy, what, what kind of involvement should we have in Israel, is based on this understanding, one, Israel is God's chosen people, and two, the land is theirs and that has not been fulfilled yet. And three, we don't want to go against the people of God. Put all three of those things together, and what do you get? A foreign policy that says protect Israel at all costs. Yes? I'm not down on that. So don't look at me like I <laughs> alright. <laughs> I'm just saying that's that's what that does. So my point is to say, when you when you uh, he, here, Bible teaching of any kind, there is in your mind built up uh, tripwires, intentionally so, and, and that's good. And I said from the very beginning on Wednesday night, one of my goals is to lay tripwires in your brain so that when heretics cross the tripwire, a little bell goes off in there and it goes ding a ling 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 and you say, I don't know about this. Something smells fishy about it. Even if you can't say why. You just know it, it sounds weird. So, so these tripwires are in your brain, and if somebody then stands up and goes, actually, I don't think we should be involved in Israel anymore, or something like that, from just a point, you're like, don't get my vote, right? Uh, because, because of that reason. And, but most of us couldn't define dispensationalism if we tried. The point is, the tripwires are there. They've been laid there, and it's helpful to understand why they've been put there. And that they've been put there, right? I don't care if you walk away from here dispensationalists or not, to be honest with you. I'm just showing you that it's there, right? That's, that's really all I want to do. All right. So, um, and yes, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with the tenets of dispensation. I don't want to own that up front and just say, you know, we can have a conversation about this all day if you want. Um, so, uh, what then dispensationalists would hold to then is to say, Jesus came to deliver Israel. So his original intention as he came was to deliver Israel from their transgressions. But what happened? Did Israel receive him with open arms? No, they didn't. So he's standing there in Matthew chapter 23, and he says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that killed the prophets, how long would I have You know, I've opened my arms to you. I can't quote it exactly, but how long I would have I would have received you, but you would not. You were not willing. So your house is left to you desolate. And he walks away, right? So the dispensationalists would say Jesus came to deliver Israel, but as a whole, they rejected Christ and His offer of the kingdom, and so consequently, God has postponed the fulfillment of all those Old Testament uh, promises or prophecies and has turned instead to deal with a second and new people, the Christian church. So dispensationalism would say, at the end of the Old Testament, well, I mean, technically kind of, I guess, there at the end of the Gospels, God sort of hits the pause button on the Old Testament and says, okay, I'm going to stop you there. And I'm going to turn and deal with this group of people over here who will receive Jesus. We're going to deal with them until they are exhausted. Until the fullness of them comes in. And then, I'm going to turn back and deal with the other. Hit the play button again on, on Israel. Right? You see that? Okay. And, and so, um, so there you go. Um, so, that's kind of the the... The big tenet is, is two different peoples working through a program in the Old Testament, getting to the end of that, pausing that, coming to work in the New Testament era with a New Testament group, mainly Gentiles but some Jews too, and dealing with them. And then once they're done, we've got to get rid of them and come back and work with the Old Testament group. Okay. All right. So after God then completes His purpose for the church in this present dispensation... Or age, or era, or whatever you want to call it, and that—that is when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, which is how how a dispensationalist would interpret Romans eleven twenty-five to twenty-seven. Then God will remove the church from the earth to heaven. Now this is typically now dispensationalists will disagree about when this will happen, but the argument is on. I mean, I think probably the most of them hold to a pre-tribulational rapture. And so they would say that before the tribulation begins, those seven years of tribulation, uh, God is going to remove the church from the earth, take them to heaven, and again turn to deal with His people Israel in order to prepare her by means of a great tribulation for the fulfillment of the promises given in the Old Testament. So then Christ will come and reign... The end of that for a thousand years on earth and in Jerusalem and be uh, if you can imagine Jerusalem then in that thousand years sort of being um, a bit like a perfect King David right that will restore Israel uh, back to a a place of of glory and prominence and people will um, come to the Messiah by the construction of another temple and, uh, and then giving sacrifices to God again. So he's really literally just going to hit pl- the play button back on where we were in the Old Testament. Do you understand? So he's dealing with the, the church differently than he would be dealing with than the Old Testament uh, Israelites. And he would resume that program and begin it again. And so, there are lots of questions that we get, right, uh, when, when we read the prophets. Um, that Where there's temples being built or there's prophecy of coming back to the land, um, giving this as an eternal possession, um, things like that that are written in the prophets, that when you see it through a dispensational lens, you come to, we are now waiting on Israel to build a third temple. Yeah? Right? Um, so all of that is, uh, the part of the reason why you read the Old Testament prophets that way is because what you were raised up in is a dispensational understanding of the text. Now, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise to you. I've said it a number of times that I'm I'm not dispensational, okay? Uh, I do take a different view. But part of the reason why when we read the Old Testament prophets, I'm going, stop at Christ and see that what they were saying in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is that don't look in the future as if there's something more to come in that sense that these things have already begun to be fulfilled. And what we're still waiting on is for them to be finalized. As I, The example that I used last time was the verdict has been given on the world. Guilty was pronounced. The execution has not happened yet. And so far there's been about 2,000 years of time in between the verdict being read and the execution happening. And during that time, Peter says we should count it as salvation, meaning there were some people that would have otherwise been condemned in that verdict being read who have now seen the light of Christ and come to salvation, and so they won't be there for the execution, right? And so that understanding is different than dispensationalism. But it's part of the reason why I, why I read the text that way. And I want you, when you read the prophets, to wait. Just let's stop at the cross and let's understand what's actually happened there. And then let's go to the New Testament where we'll see that the New Testament authors are going. See this right here? It's been fulfilled when Jesus came in. So we look at Amos and we see that Amos prophesying that the tent of David must be rebuilt. And we our inclination is to go, well the tent of David, which is Israel, is still not built yet, and so I guess that's still got to be built, right? That's still, we're still waiting on that in the future when maybe there's another temple or something like that, but then you get into the book of Acts, and it just wrecks your, your understanding of the prophet, because then he goes, no, the Gentiles coming in is God rebuilding the tent of David as he fulfills the promise that he made to his people, and that the people of God are not the children of Abraham by genetics, by blood, but by faith. And so what we didn't know at the time, we, because we were in the dark in the Old Testament, that we now know is that the people that God was talking about, bringing into the fold, was a combination of Jew and Gentile. And that in Christ, He then made them one man. Not making two, making one new man really not even called Jew or Gentile anymore, but called Christian, right? It's one group of people now. And so, for my persuasion, I don't think there are two different people. I think there's one people of God, and they all fall under the banner of, of Christian. Nevertheless, um, the fulfillment, uh, in, under dispensationalist understanding, the fulfillment of those earthly promises to his people, Israel will take place in what is called the millennium, which is a period of the thousand years, following the great tribulation and the second coming of Christ and preceding the final judgment and eternal state. Um, so, I want to just put up what might be familiar to you. It's got a lot of stuff on it, so just don't get overwhelmed. But this might be familiar to you. This is something like uh, the way a dispensational would—that's kind of small—I recognize, but it's also I put it on your notes there. Um, what the way a dispensationalist might understand the eras: classic dispensationalism would we'll see here that that uh, dispensation of innocence there in Genesis one and two, the dispensation of conscience there in three to eight, the dispensation of government there in nine to eleven, the dispensation of promise there Genesis twelve to Exodus nineteen. The dispensation of law there in Exodus 20 to Malachi 4. Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament. Then we get the birth of Christ, the cross, the ascension of Christ, the descendant of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And you have the dispensation of grace here, which is the church age. At some point, Christ returns. We meet him in the air. That would be called the rapture of the church. That's getting the church out of here so that we can then resume the program with Israel that we've begun back here, that God began back here seven years of tribulation, which is how they interpret Daniel, um, and then Christ returns to the earth and establishes a thousand-year kingdom. And that thousand-year kingdom is essentially a relief from the seven years of literally, quite literally hell on earth here in these seven <coughs> years of tribulation. They come to know Christ as King and Lord during this thousand-year period. Then there is the great white throne judgment, where there is basically the final rebellion of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are all thrown into hell and forever, and that ushers in a new eternal heaven and earth. Right? Does that sound familiar to you? Does that timeline sound familiar to you? That's a dispensational timeline. Um, so if, that, if, you, if, you, if you look at that and you go, I grew up hearing that, that is what you grew up hearing. You grew up hearing dispensationalism. And, and again, I have many friends that are that way. They can argue tooth and nail and... and very convincingly, and I, I, you know, I used to be one, and uh, and so and I get that. I understand why you would see it that way. I understand where the texts are that we, you would say. But what about this? And I get it. I understand why you would see it that way. I really do. Uh, I'm just saying you have to understand it is a way. It is not the only way of understanding this. And so as long as we understand where where the tripwire should be placed, right? What what is it that we're looking for when we when we evaluate? theology, is the person that's standing in front of me proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? And yes, literal death, literal resurrection of Christ. Is this person proclaiming the literal resurrection? Are they proclaiming Christ as the only way to salvation and necessary for your salvation and atone- in His atoning work that He accomplished there on the cross? Did Christ there on the cross absorb the wrath of God so that you might be saved. And is he the only way to salvation? Will there be a day where he returns and raises the dead literally from the ground, just as he was literally raised, their souls reunited with their bodies, that is the dead in Christ. Those who are alive will be caught up with him and transformed there in the twinkling of an eye before we go into this eternal state. Now honestly, whether it's Seven years of tribulation here, or tribulation throughout, or tribulation here, or tribulation there, or trouble all over the place. That's not the relevant pieces of what we believe. Where that tribulation is located, how long it is, that's not the relevant piece for salvation. What is the relevant piece for salvation? What is it that actually saves you? What is proclaimed there? Um... So how do we evaluate that? What, what sometimes will be the case in, uh, in certain circles is that we draw our circle really close, and if we say, well, there can be no figures of speech in the Bible, right? We, we insist on the literal interpretation. Therefore, if you do think that that's not literal, you're out. Well, that's not necessarily the case, right? So it's, it's learning to evaluate what, what is it that actually causes someone to be in the kingdom versus out of the kingdom. And that's the way we should evaluate it. Now, we're going into Ezekiel 40 to 48 next time. I would recommend you read that, okay? Because you're going to walk away from Ezekiel 40 to 48 probably going, well, that's a temple. <laughs> that's, a, that's a physical building he just described. It's got rooms, it's got utensils, it's got all kinds of things that you would describe about a room, and so, or, or a building, or whatever, and so there it is. Um, so, I, I think it would be helpful to read it, because we're not going to be able to read it all, you know, on Wednesday night, so it would be helpful if you had kind of that in your, in your mind coming in, um, as we, we go into it. So, I'm, I'm going to fearfully take questions now. <laughs> Yes, Bob. Uh, I'm afraid. I was afraid Bob Brooks had a question. I just knew it. know what you're But I don't know what you are. Yeah. I should have done that, shouldn't I have? Yes. That would have been... That been very that w- <laughs> <laughs> quiet you back there in the peanut gallery. Uh, I should have done that, and why don't I do that? In fact, I'll go one step further and I'll produce the dominant four views of that, and then I'll identify which one I lean toward. Now, let me preface this by saying I've probably been all four of them over the course <laughs> of my life at one point or another, um, but, uh, and, and most of them I hold loosely, but uh, I will do that. I will put that on the, on the thing. I'll provide an addendum for that next week. Yeah. Go ahead, Timothy. I have a feeling it's more than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's right. Yeah, i had language teacher Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Right. I that's an does Yeah. for sure, Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, case in point like to to wh- wh- I th- I think what's, what becomes difficult um When when I I know this, just just as a just as a teacher of the Bible, right? As soon as you start, as soon as you go, hey, tonight is theology night. You can just see the people just go, right? Like, but but what is troubling about that is our theology gets baked in, right? To the point where I could say, you you know, most of you are, are probably dispensational and. You know, let's say, for instance, we start talking about uh, seven years of tribulation. Somebody, co- somebody goes, "I don't think it's, I don't think there is seven years of tribulation." And you go, "What? I can't believe you just said that, right?" But you wouldn't sit through somebody talk, lecturing about theology, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you're like, "I don't," but it's, but the theology was baked into the cake a long time ago, and you didn't know it, right? And and I guess my you know my hope more than anything is, is really not to say, well, I got a room full of dispensationalists, and I'm hoping that by the end of this you're not. That's not it, right? What I want more than anything is to first help you see what you are, and then help you evaluate is that what I think the scriptures are saying, so that we can. All, as is our responsibility as Christians, become theologians. Because part of church membership, and I've taught this from the beginning since I've been here, part of church membership is your responsibility is to guard the gospel. That is specifically commanded of you as a church member in Scripture. When when we take on a church member, they join our church, and we say, I think that person is a Christian. That is you guarding the gospel. That's part of it, right? So, so you are evaluating someone's testimony. You're evaluating what they say they believe about Jesus. You're evaluating, so you're evaluating their doctrine. You're evaluating, and when you meet with them and talk with them and, you know, da-da-da-da, you're evaluating their life. And I'm not saying you're doing that necessarily in the super judgmental kind of way, but you're, 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 eva- you're, you're evaluating their life. And so if you go over to their house and you're eating dinner with them and, and you know, somebody gets up from the table and, and abuses one of their children, you know, or something like that, you, it would raise a lot of red flags, wouldn't it? And you would go, wait a minute, I thought this person was a Christian, right? So you're evaluating a, the people in the body. And as church members, you are guarding the gospel in that way. And if you see something that is flagrant in its violation of what Christ commands us to do, you go to that person, you tell them, what their sin is, and if they repent, then, hey, you have a brother, right? And if they don't, you take a couple more people and you say, I just witnessed this, and he's saying it wasn't a sin, and the other people say, you know, that that was a sin, you need to repent, and they don't repent, and then you bring it before the church, and if they still won't repent, even before the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. You are guarding the gospel in church membership and church discipline. How can you do that if you're not a theologian? How can you do that if you don't know what you believe and why? How can you do that if you have a lot of preconceived notions that you couldn't point to the verse in Scripture that says th- where you get that from? And we have tons of people in here. I, I, would, I think ju- probably just about everybody. is what we would call creedal Baptists. You know what that means? That means you got to confess Christ as a believer first and then be baptized. It's the opposite of paedo-baptist. You know what a baptist is? You're dunking babies. All right? Now, most of you are creedal Baptists. But you don't know that, and you don't know why. But why is that? Is it just because it makes sense? But if you can't go to the Bible and explain it, then why are you that? Right? You, you tracking with what I'm saying? And, and, and why would you say the church down the road, the Presbyterians, they're doing baptism wrong? I love them. I I've talked with Richard just the other day. He's a great guy. Wonderful Christian person. I think he's doing baptism wrong, but, but can we sit down with him and tell him why? I, it becomes a challenge, doesn't it? Wednesday night, building blocks, that's what they're designed to address. That, that's my hope, is that they become an educational place that you take advantage of so that you can grow and understand. They're not mandated. I don't mandate you be here on Wednesday. I don't mandate you be here on Sunday morning for the building blocks. I don't think that's commanded in Scripture. Being here for church service is. Okay, don't get crazy, all right? (laughs) But but building blocks is not. But I think they will help you in your understanding of Scripture. Right? Because we we do need to become theologians. We're not going to be perfect at it. But we need to grow in it and understand where these things come from in our, in our text. So, you want to believe in, in all of this timeline up here. I'm, believe it or not, fine with that. I just want you to know why. And be able to defend it. Always being ready, in season and out of season. Give an account. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, more than anything... I don't want to be seen as bashing anyone that's inside the family. Um, so I hope that that is not what came across tonight. But, but I do hope that we take seriously the words of your scripture. And I hope everyone in here joins me in that, wanting to take it serious and, and understand what is written on the page and the intention behind what is written. And learn to evaluate what is written there on the page. So I pray that you would give us that. We need your help to do that. We, we cannot, of our own nature, sit down with your Holy Word and unpack it in all of its beauty and grandeur and, and value and worth if the Spirit is not in us helping us. So I pray that you would give us that and in abundance that we might know and understand and grow, and it not just be for academics' sake, but so that we grow in awe of you, in love with you, so that our worship of you might increase, and so that our mouths would be untied in front of the unbelieving, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.